Hello and welcome to Monocle 24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. Coming up on today's programme. This is truly a really great opportunity when we are building a new area together, a new neighbourhood that the different aspects of also not only technology but social innovations are incorporated into that so that also the residents and citizens can also contribute to what they want their area and neighbourhood to be. It's part two of our report from Finland. Today it's all about technology and innovation. We'll hear from Helsinki's chief design officer to find out how the city is using data to create more livable spaces, discover the latest technology being rolled out by global engineering company Kerner, and their thoughts on the future of our cities. And we even head 200 metres below ground to visit an active limestone mine, which is now being used as a testing laboratory for high-rise buildings. All that and much more coming up over the next 30 minutes. The urbanist Carlotta Rebello reports from Finland and, well, here she is. So far, we've heard about the sustainability goals by both Kone and the city of Helsinki. But what are some of the practical steps being taken to turn this into reality? I was keen to find out more about the technology being rolled out and how it all comes together in practice. So I decided to check it out for myself and boarded a northbound train out of Helsinki. Today, we're in the city of Huvinka, about 45 minutes away from the capital. Here, in the middle of the Finnish countryside, is Kone's Research and Development Laboratory, and also their factory for custom-made orders. It's here that most of their work on understanding how people move around in cities is done, or people flow, as Kone's Chief Technology Officer Matje Kranz explains. This mission statement of improving the flow of urban life is what actually got me to join Kone at the end, right? Because that was something that I, I could relate to. You know, when you think about it, we have an opportunity to make an impact. Roughly one billion people every day use our elevators and escalators and doors. One of the biggest requests that we got when COVID hit was our customers coming in to us and saying, okay, Connor, can you help us with safe and timely people flow, people moving, let's say, from parking lot or a train station, metro station to their apartment or to their office or to other location? And in a way that is they can still follow sort of physical distancing, that they minimize interaction with the infrastructure and environment. And we actually did that. We did it, of course, not only ourselves, but working with partners. And from that perspective, we work on these types of solutions. We're working on solutions to optimize the flow in, let's say, office building. Some interesting examples. Uh, we work with a customer in London, actually, where they were occupying a bunch of, I think, 10 floors, and they started to see that and it was pre-COVID when people ended up moving much more across the floors and especially going to certain floors more than to others. And of course, from them was, well, we want people to work and not spend time just going from floor to floor. And what we found out is that there was a simple thing. There was a better coffee on floor five and people just went there. So the simple solution was, well, let's put better coffee in other floors and people just stay on their floors, right? So simple examples like that. One of the things that also caught my attention was in the conversation about, you know, achieving the carbon neutrality goals by 2030 and 
adaptability was also another important factor. And this idea that perhaps it's more important to think about how to extend the building's lifetime, not only about the existing ones and what you can do to ensure that they continue, but as we start to build now, how can we ensure that, you know, in 60 years or 100 you'll be able to adapt that for whatever is a new technology and the circumstances. So how can buildings then become more adaptable in the future? Just to throw another statistic at you, when you think about Europe, 85 to 95% of buildings that we have already today will still be in use in year 2050. But probably a big portion of these buildings will be used differently. I spent some time talking to uh, customers in San Francisco Bay Area recently, and they were talking to me about, all right, we have a lot of office spaces now in San Francisco. So on one hand, they were facing the choice whether they should improve and upgrade these spaces to make them more attractive for people, or maybe repurpose those, right? For example, San Francisco is suffering from lack of affordable housing, so maybe that will be one of the options. And this is sort of a symptom of, I think, the changes that we should anticipate. In the context of Kona, what we've done with our products, with our elevators, for example, we have made them modular, but we also made them intelligent. And if you think about, you have sort of an elevator today, and tomorrow you want to change the decor, you want to change the speed, you want to change the, the size, you can do all of these things, right? So there's a lot of flexibility because of modularity. But secondly, also, our DX-class elevators, for example, you can install digital panels, provide different experiences. So, for example, if you think about office space, you may have certain type of experiences, including sound, including music, including visual experience, including sort of programming of even where and how the elevator stops and goes. It's very easy to change those. The other part that I think we pay a lot of attention to is the demographics changes. We've been uh, working a lot on integration, for example, of technologies that will make it easier for people that are either visually impaired or people on wheelchairs to help them move around the building. So, for example, we integrated the application called Blind Square that helps people that are visually impaired to interact with the elevator and move around the building. We've been working on sort of optimizing the experience of people using wheelchairs, which actually requires a fair bit of work because it's not just about can I call the elevator, but keep the door long enough open, make sure the elevator is empty, make sure that you can navigate within the elevator, make sure that the elevator goes straight to the floor that you actually want to go to, and the list goes on. So we're taking this approach of adaptability in a very comprehensive way because we know that our customers will need it. My name is Amy Chen. I'm the Chief Innovation Officer at Corner. It is true that few companies have a dedicated setup for innovation, as Corner does. We also see that it's getting more and more popular, and particularly I've also seen that there are also more cities started to take on an innovation or chief innovation roles. I think it's a very nice way to have a strong focus on bringing new solutions and more and more new solutions to outside to the market. In the case of Corner, we focus very much on how to bring new solutions to our customers and how to help them to solve their pressing problems. And technology is a strong part of innovation, but it's not the only part of innovation. So it's also less, probably less so about having crazily inventive ideas 
but more about how do we bring something that is valuable with sometimes often very simple solutions like the jump lift. It looks very simple on the surface, but it's exactly this type of solutions that would actually make the life of our customers better and easier. Let's take that as an opportunity then to talk about the area we're in. We heard just a moment ago about the jump lift and pointing just at the building that we have right in front of us. But this is actually quite an amazing area in terms of how this can signify a change in construction and what this new standard for Kone is about their vision for the future. Right. I think this is only one of the very few examples that we can already bring to the market today. There are actually many more things, not only us, but also our partners and also not only large partners, but also startups are doing here in this region. You heard earlier also the city of Helsinki talking about how Kalasatama here and also the city itself are a testing bed for different type of innovations. And this is going from, of course, the building phase, but also on how we recycle and how we handle waste, how we make energy more efficient and so on and so forth. So this is truly a really great opportunity when we are building a new area together, a new neighborhood that the different aspects of also not only technology but social innovations are incorporated into that so that also the residents and citizens can also contribute to what they want their area and neighborhood to be. Does this highlight just how important it is for public and private to work together. Absolutely. I think this public-private part is, I think it's already not an idea and concept anymore. It is the reality here. And it's very much the case with the city of Helsinki, with our customer in the construction side, with the investors on here and with us on the people flow side. I'm sure that there are also many other players. So it is public, it is private, and it's combined together. And it's physical and digital also often combined together. As Amy just mentioned, the relationship between the city of Helsinki and private corporations such as Kone has been vital to pushing urban development forward. But as we've also heard, innovation is not exclusive to technology. Design also plays a crucial role in delivering that vision of what the city should look like in the future. My name is Hannah Harris. I'm the chief design officer at the city of Helsinki. Helsinki has been working with design on a kind of strategic level for 10 years now. So in 2012, Helsinki was world design capital. It was a year of hundreds of projects, hundreds of partnerships, celebration all year round, looking at what design can do to make a city better. There were obviously lots of public events as well, but also lots of tests and trials and finding new ways of working that came out of that year. Today, when you look at kind of the data, the use of design has multiplied nearly tenfold in the past five years. So there's um, in-house designers and design-minded people, a growing number across the city. That kind of way of working and really looking at the user experience, looking at the data, it's becoming something that's expected. But the other thing, of course, is how we work with our design partners We've gone through a big round of gathering feedback and data and interviewing both people inside the city and the businesses about stuff that works and what needs to happen and what kind of projects design has specifically been used for. And there are a lot of things that come out there. But one big one is as well to do with that, the bureaucratic systems or governance or how things work behind the scenes. How do we connect the dots better? So, of course, there the aim for us is to continue improving how we take on board those learnings and make sure that we can 
sort of spread them. The city of Helsinki is the largest single employer in Finland, close to 40,000 people working for the city. So obviously there's that quite basic work of getting the results out there and communicating them and sharing to be done. You mentioned earlier how, you know, you got in the role as the pandemic was about to hit. And I just would like to know how, you know, if the pandemic proved to be an opportunity to perhaps use the city in a different way. Yeah, I think as a city, we've, from a sort of planning and design perspective, I think we've had really invaluable information there as well about the things that people really value in Helsinki in their everyday life as well which we have a you know quite unique balance of exciting urban life coupled with something that's quite nature focused and sort of wilderness aspect there as well that you can combine the two and that's quite unique and that experience has come out really strongly in discussions during the pandemic also We've been able to do lots of things in terms of testing and experimenting in public space and doing stuff together with businesses or the people of Helsinki and so forth. How we support the really, there's a very sort of active food culture in Helsinki that's becoming more and more exciting that has sort of obviously spread out into the streets and squares as well during the pandemic. But we've found quite nice ways of organizing that, for instance, in some of the really central squares in Helsinki and Through that, which has been very interesting, like something like a very iconic spot in Helsinki, the Senate Square, it's this historical sort of landmark site. But that first summer of the pandemic, we did a really nice sort of restaurant terrace place there and people rediscovered that square. There was like this love for that square that the people took it back. And that was a wonderful thing that happened alongside that. Yes, it was healthy and safe and people didn't get ill and it helped the businesses. And there was a all of that, but it also sort of rediscovering that spot. You mentioned testing. How do you test in a city and then incorporate it into planning? We do several things. There's a lot in terms of Helsinki has been quite advanced in smart city and digital test bedding and working with startups and that kind of work continues. A newer area that I'm working on at the moment, which is more kind of to do perhaps with traditional planning processes and innovating in them. So we are setting up a program around placemaking initiatives, which again is not a new design method as such, but perhaps something that cities aren't so good at always, that how do you really early on when there's some change happening or need to look at, let's say, a central public spot in, let's say, a suburb of Helsinki, that how do you identify really the core strengths of that spot, work with the people, the businesses, whoever connected to that particular spot, test things out, take that knowledge on and really make sure that it's fed back into the machinery and, you know, bigger works that are coming up in those spots. And, and we are looking at several sites around Helsinki. First experiments will be done this summer, which is, I'm very excited about it. And it's been resonating very well, actually, in the planning departments as well. as it's something that they need. So we're trying to find the best way to do that in Helsinki. And obviously, along the way, make sure that those places become even nicer places in the process. Back in Huvinka, I had a chance to catch up with Yussi Herlin, the vice chairman of the board at Kone Corporation. His family has been at the helm of Kone for nearly 100 years, and I was curious to hear how that long-term approach has influenced their drive to innovate, while keeping the idea of creating a better urban environment always in mind. My great great-grandfather Harald Herlin, he, he purchased Kone in 1924 and it has been under the family control ever since. And I like to think that this family heritage and this family ownership brings sort of a more long-term thinking that 
We, of course, as a public company, we report our progress on different things on a quarterly or an annual basis. But the thinking behind the strategic decisions is not on a quarterly level. Or as we say, the joke goes that a family company quarter is 25 years. So we're really hoping to think even more about the future generations, the children, our children and their children, and how our decisions and the decisions and the directions we take at Kone affect the lives of the next generations. Now, one thing that has been quite obvious for these past two days, this is a company that cares about what the future of cities will look like. And it's not just about numbers on a paper, it's about understanding people and therefore that's what guides where your next steps are. Is this a correct assessment? Do you feel like observing urban life is perhaps the biggest advantage that the company can have? I don't want to sound cliched, but I'm super interested and passionate about urbanization, especially what's happening right now. The mega trend, of course, is, you know, thousands of years old. We've been moving into cities as soon as cities as a concept came to be. And now it's, the trend is continuing. And I think it's absolutely crucial for a company like Kone to have really deep understanding about the needs of people in cities. And as we've seen now, even though urbanization is a trend that spans thousands of years, now we've seen a lot of sudden changes. We're seeing how COVID-19 changed the ways people work and live in cities. And we were seeing the effects of, of the climate crisis affecting how cities work, how cities now have to be more resilient in the structure, as well as being able to cope with increased urbanization and being able to, to accommodate that. So I think definitely we are in a business and in an industry where understanding city life is very important. Well, staying on that topic of urbanization, how is Ancona influencing what the cities of tomorrow would look like? And is it about taking that more people-focused approach? Is it about reading about these trends and kind of trying to predict where your technology will match where the trend is going? It is definitely a people-focused approach and understanding. I mean, we need to understand, of course, how buildings work, how buildings work as structures and the technology that goes in there. And we have to understand the technologies that govern how elevators and escalators move and what they can and cannot do in different conditions. But what is the most crucial to understand and also the most challenging to understand is, of course, how do people work and how do they behave in cities? What are their needs and their wants and the patterns of behavior in different settings. Talk to me a bit about, you know, the connected elevator and how does that fit in city life and the idea of a more connected city network. Do you have any, I guess, dream or ideal applications for the future of that and how that will influence urban life? So the connected elevator, such as the ones that we are have just been bringing to the market, is I don't want to make a lame joke, but really it's a platform. As elevators have always been platforms for people, but the connected elevator is a platform for developing new hitherto unforeseen services and solutions for the users of that elevator. And the way we see it is that we bring that platform and we want to get the innovation from our partners, from our customers, from the people who are using the elevator. Like here's an elevator that can do unforeseen things because it has built-in connectivity, because it has the digital layer built on top of it that enables it. We don't presume to know all the things that it should do. We just want to make sure that it has the capability to do those things. 
the way I see it is that the city, the building, the elevator, they should just work. They should offer a seamless experience. The elevator is a part of that, or the escalator. They're both parts of that experience. They don't need to necessarily make a big deal out of the fact that now you are in an elevator, now you're in an escalator. Sometimes that is what we're looking for, you know, that it's an experience. But other times it's just like you want to get from the door of the building to your desk without having to think about anything except what you want to think about, whether it's about your work or, or your family or whatever, so that you don't have to stop and think, okay, where do I need to go? What do I need to press? How do I get from here to there? It should be a seamless experience. And, you know, you can expand this thinking to the city level as well. Like when you get go from your home to your workplace or to a leisure location or to do shopping, that everything just sort of works. You can focus on the things you want to focus on and everything else just sort of works around it. What, in your opinion, is Kone's vision for the cities of the future? We talked a bit just earlier, this idea of improving the flow of urban life, etc. But is it about, you know, in 60 years from now, still having the same long-term thinking and perhaps being able to deliver some technology that is just now starting to get worked on? Is it meeting those sustainability targets? When you think about the company in the hands of the future generation of your family, what is your vision for that? If I think of the next 10 years, I believe we're going to see so many interesting developments with regards to sustainability, or well, let's say even the next 20 years. The next 10 years, we have a lot to do, as we are seeing from the projections of the global temperature rise. There's a lot to do in the next 10 years to avoid and or minimize a global climate catastrophe. You know, what will the city look like in 50 years is a, is a really interesting question. I can just say that, you know, looking at that time scale, it might be that the elevator, as we know, it will no longer exist, that there might be another, you know, because of developments in other technologies that somehow it's actually easier to just, you know, use personal drones for everyone to carry them from the street to the buildings. Now, maybe that's a little too sci-fi. But would Connor be part of that if that was a reality? Well, this brings me back to why it is that we talk about people flying, why it is that we repeat the fact that we are here to improve the flow of urban life, that our vision is to create the best people flow experience, is that that thinking is not restricted to the elevator or the escalator. Sure, we look at it repeatedly and right now, Getting a person from ground floor to 10th floor, the best way to do that is to use an elevator. But we're not, you know, we want to think outside the shaft. And if the best people flow experience is, you know, something else in the future, then we should be looking at that. I'll end with just one final question, slightly tongue in cheek. So please allow me this. But when you when you travel, let's say you're outside of Finland, and I'm just saying that because just thinking outside of the country, if you have to get on an elevator or an escalator that is not by Connor, can you help yourself not comparing it to your products? I always check the brand, whether it's in Finland. Yes, of course, we, we have a lot more Kona elevators than our competitors' equipment in Finland, but I always check. And nowadays, I can tell from the, the font they use on their, the signalization, like, oh, this is Kona, or this is not Kona. And maybe even, okay, this is definitely Schindler, I can tell from this and that part. But yeah, of course, I always look. And, you know, if I, then I use a competitor's equipment, then that's great comparative study. Like, okay, so this is how they are doing this, this and this part. So it's all valuable information. 
The past few days, speaking with people from Kone and from Helsinki City Hall have shown us the benefits of public and private working together. But most importantly, that having a human-centric approach to your craft, whatever this may be, will ultimately result in better cities for everyone. We had one last stop in our itinerary before making our way back to London, this time in the small city of Lohia, about an hour's drive from the Finnish capital. The car journey to get there was beautiful. It's a bright, wintry day with plenty of sunshine and the snow covers most of the landscape. Almost every lake or creek that we encounter seems to be frozen still. We arrive at this small, unassuming site, surrounded by pine trees, to a small building with Connie's branding. But not all is as it seems on the surface. Just 305 meters below us, you'll find Tuturi, an active limestone mine, part of which is used by Kone as their high-rise testing laboratory. So, kind of the old... Here is where essential parts such as brakes, cables and safety procedures for their elevators can be tested before being assembled in some of the world's tallest buildings. Before heading underground, we had a look at the laboratory floor, which is basically the engine room for this testing facility. Yeah, this is the kind of uh, how a machine room yeah. would typically look yeah. at the top of the building. What we would never see. As you never see it, and, and uh, we are saying that kind of... Uh, the, the Building designers are making life very complicated to put all this stuff at the top of the building. The high-rise test shafts, I think we are probably running 8 meters per second at the moment, but we could kind of uh, speed those up even to kind of 19 meters per second if needed. And then here in this corner you can actually see the top of the drop test shaft. So that's where we have a dummy elevator. It's not the real elevator car, but the kind of just the sling and test weights and then the mechanism that you can drop it to the free fall. The idea is that you get the maximum speed and then you activate the brakes and test the safety gear. So it's like kind of racing cars, so the trick is not really kind of how you get to the maximum speed, but then how to ensure that everything is safe and verified from a safety perspective. And of course the notified bodies and authorities are joining us in the tests to certify all the safety gears, so it's important that we are able to prove that they are working. Have you learned from Hollywood movies all the things that can happen to elevators? <laughs> Most of the things that are shown in, in, in Hollywood movies cannot happen. Well, on that reassuring note, it's time to put on our hard hats, warm high-vis jackets and protective shoes and head underground. So we're here now 200 meters below the ground. We are at Kone's high-rise testing laboratory. Uh, this is a working limestone mine and the site that Kone uses has actually 11 um, elevator shafts uh, varying in size. This is their way of testing um, their technology and instead of building up, uh, as you can imagine, a tower of that size would perhaps disturb the nature around us. Uh, so they decided to go down and we just arrived um, at uh, this first stop, 200 meters below the ground, and we're gonna go and see how these uh, elevators are actually tested. This is actually the setup that we saw in the, in the laboratory floor, this drop test shaft. And uh, while it's a bit difficult to go inside the shaft and, and see it in, in your own eyes, so that's why we have this demo set up here. So this is actually the kind of the top of the shaft, 
and the, the dummy elevator or, or sling that is uh, imitating the, the real lift. I don't know if there's volunteers to kind of drop lift. You do the honors. Magically, it stopped. But there's an exhibition uh, around this history of the mine. And, uh, oh, now you feel the cold, yes. Yeah. <laughs> this is really live mine. Uh, they started the mining in late 1800. First with this kind of open air, but then had to go underground when this was kind of empty. The kind of what you were able to reach from the kind of open air and the water started to come in. And uh, this is active, active, so not obviously here, but in the other parts of mine, they, they continue to extract the chalk stone, which is then used in many, many areas. Of course, for example, the printed paper, like you know, it's, it's reducing, but this kind of glossy paper, we are using the chalk stone to get the kind of nice quality of the printing and this kind of glossy, glossy feeling on the paper. You can try to break some, some stones, but the safety first, so make sure you are <laughs> so we're now on level minus 112. It's around 100 meters below ground. So we have actually gone up from <laughs> last time we checked in. And as you can hear from the steps around us, the terrain has changed. We have actually gravel because we are inside the active mine. This is where we are moving from, you know, the sleek side of uh, it being in, presented to the public by Kone and now we're going into the actual mine, into the tunnels, uh, into the stone and we've actually just touched uh, some limestone as well to try to see how not only they navigate these tunnels in order to access their own high-rise testing facility but just the effort that is happening below ground that you're not even aware of. This includes a small tour where we're able to see the history of the mine so far. The tour included an impressive light show, which highlighted just the sheer dimension of some of the caves inside this mine. I tried my best not to think too much of the 200 or so meters of ground that laid above our heads as we continued to descend into the mine. A small display of old photos showed the ways in which miners used to come into work in this very spot, resembling more a cauldron on chains than anything else. We've come a long way since then, and I'm glad that we could use the elevator today. Speaking of which, it's time to make our ascent and go back to ground level. We're now leaving uh, level minus 112 and we're going back to the ground level, which is actually level 37. Uh, you, just this moment, I can feel my ears popping from going back on the ground and we are, of course, uh, using the Aurora lift from Conet to bring us back on the ground. Our time in Finland is almost up, but before we head off, let me leave you with a final thought from Annie Sinemaki, Helsinki's deputy mayor for urbanism. I asked her what lessons could other cities learn from her own Helsinki. I think it's not probably a lesson, but I think that what I find most interesting or motivating is in cities the possibility of combining strict environmental targets with social cohesion and 
economic prosperity. And I think that it's in the core of the cities to be able to actually have all these at the same time. I do feel that Helsinki, for example, per capita emissions, we have reduced them 50% from 1990 level. And we are more wealthy now. So in that sense, I do believe that the end result will not be hard to bear. (laughs) And also then joy. So it's important also, I think, in these severe times with severe targets, somehow I think what I always look after also in different cities is the places of joy and enjoyment, because cities are of that as well. For Monocle in Finland, I'm Carlotta Rabello. And that's all for this week's edition of The Urbanist. Remember to subscribe for the show for your weekly dose of urbanism every Thursday, as well as new episodes of our sister show, Tool Stories, every Monday. Today's programme was produced by Carlotta Rabello and David Stevens, both reporting from Finland. And David, well, he also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Husky Rescue with City Lights. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Under the city lights.